Today is from Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Patmos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and, and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when they saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Pathos and went to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Poseidon, and then on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, 
What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to execute him. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. But the Jews, inside of the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. 
So we're continuing our series, Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. Uh, John Weiss and Emily are on assignment in Missouri this weekend, so they're killing two birds with one stone, so to speak. They are visiting Emily's wonderful parents, and um, at the same time, they're going through training in a thing called Sozo, and Sozo was developed by a church in California that John and I have visited called Bethel Redding. Some of you no, we, one of our books of the year was by the pastor of that church, Bill Johnson, and it was uh, When Heaven Invades Earth. And um, Sozo, as we see it, is going to be a very good vehicle for helping people kind of take their first step into the realm of deliverance and inner healing. As you know, we believe there's uh, five steps that people should take at conversion in the New Testament. We... Uh, Believe that you're supposed to receive Christ, which includes two elements, uh, the new birth and conversion. And conversion has two aspects, uh, conviction with repentance and trusting or following in faith. And, uh, um, you know, the church today thinks you you receive Christ and, and you, that is you pray to receive Christ and you you confess your sins and repent and so forth. Then you're born again, but actually you can't. You couldn't do that unless you're born again to do that. <laughs> you, you, uh, Christ has to quicken you and make you alive so that you can hear his voice. And uh, Jesus says in John 5, a time is coming and now is when the dead will hear my voice and those who hear will live. And so when you're born again, that should lead toward your being converted. And that's part, part of the problem we're up against is because of just the depth of our paganism and narcissism and so forth and the shallowness of our not only our gospel but our christian models um so many are actually being quickened by the holy spirit but not really fully converted and uh so it's it's kind of like in an, in the natural as if a baby is born with lots of birth defects or born prematurely and so forth and so we you know we kind of but god can renew and restore all things so um Obviously, that's a major thing for us. But then uh, water baptism and baptism in the Holy Spirit are, if you look at Hebrews 6, when it's talking about the foundations of the faith, it talks about baptisms, plural, whereas Ephesians 4 says there's one baptism. Is that a contradiction? No. Uh, what it is, is that Bible math is there are three persons in one God. Christ has a dual nature. He's 100% man and 100% God. And in one complete person, in such a way that the two natures are not confused or intermingled at all, and he uh, and so forth. So the truth of the matter is, is that baptism in the Spirit is one, baptism in water is one, and baptism in the Spirit and baptism in the Holy Spirit to get or and baptism in water and Holy Spirit together are one. And um, you know, in marriage, uh, when the you know, we had a wonderful wedding this summer, and the two people didn't became one. Now, they didn't stop being one person, though. <laughs> like, I don't have to, like, when I'm talking to Edwin, I don't go, so Edwin and Beth, how are you doing? And Edwin's like, We're, I didn't know Beth was here. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, he's one, she's one, and Edwin and Beth are one. <laughs> That's Bible math. <laughs> uh, don't do that in algebra class. You'll get in a lot of trouble. But uh, <laughs> so... Uh, and, uh, you know, and again, we don't, that one of the aspects of Grace Christian Fellowship, we hope where everyone is clear on is we don't 
believe you need to agree with us on every point to to be part of this or anything like that. So that, you know, we've always had one or two people who don't see the baptism in the spirit the same way. We have uh, lots of people who see infant baptism versus believer's baptism. We're, we're just unwilling to divide over those kinds of things. So, uh, but moving on to step four of inner healing and deliverance, we've just had kind of a log jam of people who've been ready, but lots of our leaders are stretched too thin to get to all that. And we've needed to raise up more people who know how to do that and, and uh, so forth. And uh, so, um, you know, we, we believe this Sozo thing is going to be very helpful for that because it kind of, you know, we've been trying to get people to read certain books and work through a book called Total Forgiveness Solution by R.T. Kendall before they receive inner healing and deliverance and to work through at least two or hopefully all three of the books we recommend on deliverance. However, uh, that's hard for some people to stay focused on that. And, and that's, you know, not the only way, area you need to grow in. And the SOZO kind of does all the legal preparation to get that process started. So John and Emily have volunteered to kind of be our pioneers in that ministry. Keep them in your prayers. We have been doing a little bit more deliverance lately. And um, if you uh, want to get deliverance, you can arrange that through John Weiss and, and on, for Sundays. And you could arrange that through Edwin and Beth for Monday nights. And uh, because we are going to... Uh, uh, be doing more deliverance after the Monday night prayer meeting, uh, which we started last week and it went very well. So with that in mind, let's get into our message here. Eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel, element 4A and B. Now we covered the first uh, side of this page in uh, the 930 Sunday school. I realize there are a few people here now that weren't here at 930. Hopefully you'll be able to track with us. Flip over, however, and I, we actually started in on Acts 2, but I'll, I'll go into this. I don't have time to read the whole scriptures. So here's how I'd like you to use this. If you see at the top, does everybody have an outline? Is there anyone, please double check to make sure everyone has outlines, because I don't see some people looking at outlines. Does everyone have one? Simon, Josephine, you guys have two? We have plenty of copies, so please have an individual one for every person. And we have one? Okay because you really won't be able to follow without the outline. Okay, so Acts 2, uh, verse 14 to 36, is the first presentation of the gospel after Pentecost. And uh, it all starts after the Holy Spirit comes like a, mush, riding mush, like a rushing mighty wind. It's easy for me to say. And uh, tongues of fire, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in tongues as the Holy Spirit gives them utterance. And it happens to be the day of Pentecost, which is the celebration of, I believe it's the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament, which celebrates Moses bringing down the law from Mount Sinai. And it's the ultimate fulfillment of the promises of the Father, the main promises of the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, uh, those who were saved were saved by faith working through grace, and they were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Not like people think there was never anyone saved by performance or works ever, and there, nor ever will there be after the 
millennium or some nonsense. Uh, that would be a total denial of the gospel, and then Christ, there would be no reason for Christ to have ever come. So, uh, in the Old Testament, the saints were saved by the Holy Spirit, granting them grace, working through granting them faith, as Ephesians 2.8 makes clear. And uh, Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. God is the granter of faith. And it's the Lord who draws us into his kingdom. And we choose to follow because we hear his voice. Right? Now, the... Um, um, the, the only difference were the following. In the Old Testament, the saints were looking forward based on, we are all saints, your faith is based in the person of God and in his attributes, and because God, when he reveals himself to you, makes you know that you know that you know. It's not a hope, it's not a leap in faith. You know from the witness of God himself that God is true and all men are liars. You know it. And... Um, he himself is the proof. That's why the Bible never argues for the existence of God. It just declares it. And so when God uh, opens up your eyes, and, you're, and the, the main thing is he has to make you willing. Jesus said, whoever's willing to do my will will know the teaching. A person who is having doubts about God, the origin of their doubts is their lack of willingness to believe. They don't want the implications of the kingdom of God coming into their life. So, um, this is, uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting very distracted. Uh, stop the recording for a minute. Don't worry about me. Hopefully, uh, hopefully uh, Stephen and Anvesh will be. When, uh, the men who come who come rushing up in the might with the mighty wind, and they hear them proclaiming the mighty deeds of God, not necessarily the gospel, but of course the gospel is rooted in mighty deeds of God, so there's an overlap there. But uh, when they hear this, they come running up, and they say, "We hear them speaking the mighty deeds of God in our different languages." Because the people uh, during the time of Christ, and this is going to be important when we go through Acts 13, so you might as well make sure you understand this. I hope everyone understands this. Um, in that time period, that is when Jesus walked the earth and when he lived in Israel, Israel itself was divided into three main parts, and it was about the size of what would be from Lima to Cincinnati today. And the southern part which would be equivalent to, say, Cincinnati, was called Judea, and Jerusalem was the center of it. And in Judea and Jerusalem was the temple and was, um, uh, was all the major sects. There were many sects of Jews, that is, S-E-C-T-S. -E many, uh, this, this group, that group, this way of thinking, that way of thinking. Some of the one, major ones that you read in the Bible are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, uh, the Essenes, and so forth. Simon, one of the disciples was Simon the Zealot. 
And the very fact that he could be a disciple in the same community with Levi the tax gatherer his shows Jesus' miraculous power to change lives. They would have killed each other prior to Jesus. They would have actually advocated, Simon the Zealot would have advocated murdering uh, Levi as a godly thing to do <laughs> before he met Jesus. So um, there's all these major sects in, in the southern part. The middle part, Samaria, uh, is filled with people who are biologically not uh, completely Jewish. Because starting with the first dispersion or dis diaspora, the conquering of Israel in 722 or so, uh, give or take a year, 720, there's debates about it the next year, uh, the northern kingdom was taken into Babylon and so forth. And when Nehemiah and Ezra and so forth went back to restore Jerusalem and to rebuild the temp temple, as is true of every time period and every move of God, only about 3% of the Jews ever went back. So beginning from that time on, and then, the, the, of course, the, uh, the conquering of Judea, approximately 586 B.C., there's some debate on dates there, uh, on through the conquering by Alexander the Great around 333 B.C., uh, the conquering of the Romans, which started in the 5th century B.C., but, but by the time about 100 and some, uh, they, they were conquering what's, you know, Israel or Palestine. Uh, they conquered Jerusalem in 65 A.D. or 65 B.C., uh, ironically, partly because uh, the Jews were were so into uh, that you should do nothing on the Sabbath that they weren't willing to defend the city on the Sabbath day. <laughs> and the Romans took advantage of that and, and breached the walls of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day because the Jews were not willing to uh, fight. And um, so... Um, in the northern part of Galilee, you actually kind of had like, you know, like blue states, red states. You had sort of a more grassroots uh, Jewish people who were tended to be more poor economically. And they were in cities that you read about, like Capernaum and Nazareth and the Decapolis, uh, where, in the gather, where the gathering demoniac was from and so forth. Those tended to have like a, a little more purified religion, you might say in a little more down-to-earth, uh, common you know, way of life, but they also tended to struggle financially. And they, uh, it was very common, almost all young people would memorize the first five books of the Bible by the time they were 12, if you were from Galilee. So when you hear modern preachers say, Jesus called the disciples to follow him, and they were uneducated men. That is just nonsense. It comes from a lack of knowing of history. They were very educated men. They could quote at least the first five books of, of the Bible from uh, Scripture. I'm pretty sure there's no one in our church that could do that. And uh, so maybe we're the uneducated men. So, uh, and uh, if you wanted to get asked to be uh, a disciple of the better rabbis, you needed to be able to quote most of the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. And what the disciples were was, was, was guys who had been passed over by the better rabbis because they hadn't attained the level, that kind of level of knowledge of the scriptures. And so they were working, uh, as most Hebrew boys did, they were, worked in their father's business. 
If your father was a carpenter, you became a carpenter. If your father was a fisherman, you became a fisherman. If your father worked for Time Warner Cable, you worked for Time Warner Cable. And uh, <laughs> uh, there weren't a lot of people working for Time Warner Cable back then, as far as I know. But uh, <laughs> um, then uh, in the rest of the Roman Empire, the Acts 2 identifies 16 different nations the Romans had conquered, and there was what was called Hellenized Jews. And during that time period, every city had a thing called a synagogue, and syn is the Greek word that means together or with, and gog, it comes from logos, it meant with the word. It was a place where they gathered together with the word. And people would read the scriptures, and people would comment on the scriptures. And it became the forerunner, actually, in the model for what became the New Testament church. Now, the synagogues had no sacrifices in them. That was only done in the temple in Jerusalem. But the synagogue had worship, scripture readings, teachings on the scriptures by rabbis, and, uh, um, and, and meals together. Some of the elements we still have today. So, um, when, this, when Acts 2 happens, the, the people who heard the mighty rushing wind and the people proclaiming the, the mighty deeds of God were, were Jewish people that were not from Galilee and not from Jerusalem, but were from the rest of the Roman Empire. Now, they were usually called Hellenized Jews because Alexander the Great uh, who was uh, personally tour tutored by uh, Aristotle, had a vision to create one world government where everyone was allowed to have their secondary gods and their national culture and their national identity, but they would also have Greek culture and Greek philosophy and Greek identity and the Greek gods as the main gods and especially the god of the emperor. who Alexander hoped to be. However, he could conquer very militarily. And in 10 years' time, he conquered all the way to what is India, almost all of Northern Africa, and so forth. But he couldn't conquer his own sexual immorality, and he died of syphilis at age 30. Um, so, uh, you, one of the scripture readings today mentioned the Seleucids. The Seleucids were one of the four kingdoms that after Alexander died, his kingdom broke up into four generals covering four areas, and the Seleucids uh, governed the area that, that was Israel. Now, why is this all important? It's important because the ones who didn't live in Israel were called Hellenized Jews, and there were three groups of people there. As a rule, though, all three tended to be much more prosperous than the, uh, the, the, the Jews living in Israel. They were less anti-Roman government. They were much more educated. And they generally spoke three or four languages, uh, which we find unusual in America today, but there's why the old joke, what do you call someone who can only speak one language in American? Uh, they spoke their national language. They spoke their, uh, the, they spoke Greek, 
and they spoke Latin. Greek and Latin were what's called a lingua franca. If you are from Eastern Africa today, uh, Kenya, you probably speak at least one, maybe two, three, or four, or five, or six tribal languages. You probably speak Swahili, which is a lingua franca, a, a language that if you're from different tribes and you don't know their tribal language, you can try that one. And they probably speak English because that uh, is also a lingua franca. So uh, these people were all educated and they, they were three groups of people, those who were born biologically Jewish, but were serious enough about their faith that they were very involved in, in the synagogue. And when they could afford it financially, and they were usually were the type of people who could afford it, they would go to Jerusalem for the major festivals three times a year. Okay. The second group of people were, caught, were actually born biologically from these other nations, but they had converted to Judaism. From about 150 BC forward, Judaism was growing rapidly among Gentiles, even though the, the Judea Jews uh, opposed Gentiles becoming Christians. They were very anti-Gentile and very prejudiced. But the Hellenized Jews had an idea that we're, we were supposed to be the light of the nations and light of the world, and they were taking their Judaism to the, to the surrounding nations. And because Rome was morally collapsing in its secular humanism and was bankrupt, many, many people were turning to Judaism because they saw the Jewish businessmen as being more ethical. They saw their family structure as being uh, less divorced and more intact. And they believed the Ten Commandments was a superior way of life. So Judaism was growing a lot throughout the Roman Empire before Christ came. And these people were attending synagogue. So there were some of those kind of Jews. One of the things that anyone who converted to Judaism would begin to learn Hebrew so they could study the Hebrew, the scriptures in Hebrew. It was, I don't know if you know much about Islam, but if you're a true Muslim, you believe that you can only study the scriptures in Arabic because any translation would, uh, to any other language would be so flawed that you wouldn't be getting the point. So if you become a Muslim, if, and you really understand the Muslim, Islam, you start to learn Arabic. Uh, it was very much like that at that time. Now, uh, hopefully you like history a little bit here. Um, <laughs> getting a little history lesson today. Um, didn't mean to get into it this much, but um, sorry, what's in you comes out sometimes. So um, when all these people come running up and they and so forth, they uh, they're pretty sophisticated business type people, uh, very educated in the scriptures and all this kind of thing, and they're hearing them proclaiming the mighty deeds of God, and they begin to say these people are drunk. So I, I love the fact that the opening line of Christian history was when Peter said, men of Israel or men of Judea and Israel, whatever, uh, and you who fear God, because, oh, by the way, the third group of people was called God-fearers, 
and God-fearers were people like Cornelius, who in Acts 10, that hopefully we'll get to today, but probably not, doesn't look good. Um, but the God-fearers were people who believed in the God of Israel, sometimes attended synagogue, but did not fully convert to Judaism because there, in most cases, there would be too much political or social cost. And that included many, many Roman military leaders and other uh, very wealthy Romans, aristocrats, and so forth. And the Jews of the, of the dispersion, that is the Hellenized Jews outside of Israel, allowed unbelievers and Gentiles to come to their synagogues, even if they weren't Jewish, as long as they were respectful of the God of Scripture. Okay, so there's the background. And that, that background will be important as we go through the book of Acts. So um, these people say they're drunk, and Peter starts his great sermon by saying, we're not drunk. It's too early in the morning for that. <laughs> uh, if you learn anything about sales, you teach your a salesperson that when your customer has an objection, you don't skirt the objection, you don't dodge the objection, you deal with it. But as soon as you deal with it, move on to the positive points and sell the product. So Peter basically says, it's too early to be drunk. Now, <laughs> he deals with it, and he goes right into this sermon. Okay, now, I wish I could give you the whole sermon. If you want an analysis of this sermon, go back through the podcast. John actually taught a series called Christ in the Old Testament, and he in, in uh, part zero, because he was using computer numbers, and also it was because this is the, that was the only one of the series that's from the New Testament. But John analyzed all these verses in Acts 2 in that sermon. And uh, you could scroll back through the podcast. It's a, it's a few years back, but it was a 15-part series on how to find Christ in the Old Testament. Very good series. Very insightful. I learned things I didn't know every time. So, um, so Peter does this whole sermon, and... I, uh, I'm going to explain a couple things about it. Number one, he quotes from Joel 2.28 through 32. Because a major concept of the Old Testament is that the, there would be a promise of a new covenant. And the only difference in the new covenant, people would still be saved by faith, working through grace. They would still need to be converted. But... God would write this law upon their heart and their minds, and not just the priest class, would that, that is the Levitical priest descended from Aaron and the tribe of Levi, two levels of priest in the Old Covenant. Not just the priest would know the Lord, but everyone would know the Lord. And everyone would have the law of God written on their hearts by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit who... Uh, who filled some people would fill everyone to a much greater degree. So in the Old Testament, we see Samuel anoint Saul to be king. And Samuel tells Saul that you're going to run in on the way home. Quit looking for your father's donkeys. He's, your dad's worried about you now. Most parents could relate to that. He's not even worried about the donkeys anymore. He's wondering how you're doing. Yeah, you better get home and tell you. And besides that, they found the donkeys already. And Samuel's a prophet. He knows that. And he says, on the way home, you're going to run into some sons of the prophets, and they're going to pray for you, and you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. A lot of people say the difference in the Old and New Testament is that uh, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon them. That just doesn't bear out with the words of Scripture. 
They, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and changed into another man. That's what happens at regeneration. If you're really born again, you didn't just pray a sinner's prayer or intellectually assert the ideas of the gospel. You, God gave you faith to repent before it, to trust in him and not you, and it changed your life. And you can say, man, I was changed that day. My wife still remembers uh, a friend named Joe McAuliffe praying with her to receive Christ October 2nd, 1971, and her whole life was changed. Now, I believe in gradual conversion too, uh, yeah, such as in the, in the natural, their conception and birth itself is nine months apart. There can be a process, but in the bottom line is your spirit has to be quickened. You have to come into a relationship with God. Your attitudes about sin have to change. You have to discern that you're supposed to be part of the body of Christ. You, 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 a lot changes at conversion. Everything changes. Um, I, if you get a chance, ask Simon, who shared with me his testimony. But, you know, he had been to church and everything like that. Then he heard a guy sharing the gospel uh, outdoors, right, in public. And, uh, in, he, he, and it, it was quickened in his spirit, and his whole life was changed that day. So that's what's going on here. And in, uh, in the uh, promise of the New Testament, instead of just an occasional king or priest or prophet, and we put uh, the judges underneath the kings, government, civil government officials, priestly officials, or prophetic officials being filled with the Holy Spirit, they will all be filled with the Holy Spirit. And they will all reign in life, that is, be kings and princes. Romans 5.20, uh, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, and those who receive the abundance of grace will reign in life, will become a king, a kingdom of priests. You, you are called to reign under King Jesus, with King Jesus and through King Jesus. Uh, you will become a priest, and you will become a prophet. That's the promise of the new covenant. And that's what Peter is explaining is happening here in his sermon by quoting Joel 2, 28 through 32. Then he quotes Psalm 16, 8 through 11 to say that uh, David, and uh, by the way, the, the, the reading that Larry did from Acts 13 also quotes Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Uh, Paul there, Peter here. And they say, David said that you will not allow your servant when he dies to undergo decay, and David did, so he must be talking about someone else. He's talking about Jesus, who rose again the third day before he started to decay. Finally, he quotes Psalm 110, which is quoted eight times in the New Testament, and elude, when and eight is the number of new beginnings. It's not, it's not accidental that it's quoted eight times in the New Testament. It's one of the most important Messianic Psalms. And he says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, it's quoted directly eight times, but it's talked about about 20 more times. So, my point being that there's no way to share the true gospel without telling the history of Israel. Now, 
The second time the gospel is presented in Acts is in Acts 3, 22 through 26. It says, Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. He's quoting there Deuteronomy 18, 15. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. By the way, the reason I use the New American Standard is because the small caps is their way of setting out apart quotes, and I think it's easier to see for us old people with bad eyes. Uh, most of the Bibles, like English Standard Version and New King James, use italics when it's a quote from the Old Testament. And I, I tend to miss that more often myself. So the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, to whom you shall give heed in everything he says to you. Peter is saying Jesus is that person that Moses is talking about. And all Israelites were expecting that from the time of the wilderness on. Oh, let me go back and finish one last point about Acts 2. I, I apologize, I forgot a very important point. When he says at the end of his sermon, so God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you sacrificed. John brings this out in his series, by the way, very clearly. He doesn't mean God, you have to look at the Greek. He's not saying that God, that God made him in the sense we would like God created him to be. He was never created. He's saying God made it manifest. God made it clear. God declared it to be. Okay, so Jesus always was the Lord and the Christ. So that's very important. But now he's made it clear to anyone who's willing to hear that Jesus is both the Lord and the Christ. The Israelites were expecting two major things in the future. One, Emmanuel, God with us. That's why we read those passages at Advent every year. Emmanuel, God with us. And two, they were expecting Mashiach, in Greek Christos, the anointed one. Because of wrong views of eschatology that were very similar to our dispensational premillennialism today, the Israelites were not expecting that to be the same person. And they were expecting him to be a military conqueror of the Romans and throw the Romans out of, of Israel. They weren't expecting a guy who was going to conquer their sin problem, the demons, and the world system, and that was going to conquer from the inside out, from the bottom up, and was going to change the whole world progressively but for his glory. And so they didn't, that's why John the Baptist himself, after he says, behold the Lamb of God and so forth, eventually John the Baptist is shaken in his faith a little bit. And he says, he sends a delegation to Jesus and saying, hey, wait a minute. You, you know, you're not, you guys aren't practicing millinery maneuvers. You don't have uh, guns stored away. Of course, don't worry, guns yet. I'm just kidding. You don't have swords there's no talk of an uprising against Rome. You're not building an army. Are you the coming one? Are we supposed to look for someone else? Did I get it wrong? Because Jesus wasn't the kind of conquering hero that he was expecting. And Jesus, everyone thinks that when Jesus answers questions, it's some cryptic answer, so forth. He always answers the actual question. And he punches it right in the nose. That's why people didn't like him. And uh, <laughs> he, he says, go tell John what you have seen and heard. 
The blind receive sight. The dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to him. And blessed is he who doesn't stumble over me. Blessed is he who doesn't get offended because I wasn't the package you were expecting. The word stumble means to get caught in a trap. That you have to, you would have to cut your leg off to get out of the trap. In other words, you'd have to die to be and be born again to see it. <laughs> to get out of that trap. Blessed is he who's granted new life and new eyes to see what the scriptures always were saying all along. So, after, after Peter says, quotes uh, Deuteronomy 18, 15, 18, and 19, he goes back to, all, to a bunch of promises to Abraham. And he says, and it will be that every soul that does not heed this prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among his people. That's still Deuteronomy. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and now he's quoting Genesis 18, and in your seed, who is Christ, all the families, meaning all the nations, of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you, turning you from your sins, etc., the whole point of Matthew is that Jesus is all the prophets put together with all the prophets' message. He's the total fulfillment of the law. He is Israel. He is Moses. He is Joseph. And it is God's final covenant lawsuit against Israel. And he's saying, this repentance is going to be granted to you and a generation from now, armies are going to encircle Jerusalem and destroy the temple, and I'm going to be done with Israel And because I'm building my church, my new people of God, and I'm inviting you to repent and get in on it. And to, that's why all, during that generation, as they said, be saved from this perverse generation, they weren't just talking about worldliness in general. They were talking about that specific perverse generation that Jesus had done his miracles in their midst. So much, so so convincingly that Jesus says, if if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen these miracles, they would have repented. And you still can't receive me because your religious paradigms are blinding you to see the whole message of, of the Bible. So, uh, you know, and unfortunately, we have a very similar situation in our day. And uh, so, he goes on to. Uh, but what Peter is basically saying is we are going to continue to tell every Israelite everywhere throughout the whole Roman Empire that the kingdom of God is being taken away from you and being given to a nation producing the fruit. Repent, receive the gospel. Get on board with the thing God's doing. That's the whole message of the New Testament over and over and over again. 
read a book called an eschatology of victory by j marcellus kick and it'll change you'll you'll understand the new testament in ways you've been missing your whole life so um in any case starting from acts 2 and acts 3 the apostles follow an exact pattern that jesus had told them to they go first to the lost sheep of the house of israel so they go from synagogue to synagogue they proclaim the kingdom in the synagogue, and those who repent and receive him become the, the, the core of the new community of Christians. Jesus said, I will build my called-out assembly. And then they go out to the marketplaces and proclaim to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles and the Jews become one in one church, which is so huge because that's why no one will ever take our gospel seriously as long as we have separate Korean churches and separate Kenyan churches and separate black churches and separate white churches. And the basis of who we really get involved with is based on things other than Jesus Christ. You know, if you know anything about the destruction that happened in Rwanda in the 1990s, up until that time, all Western missionaries considered Rwanda to be the most Christianized nation in Africa. But when it got down to it, their, their allegiance to their tribe was more than their allegiance to Christ and his kingdom. To the point where there we were willing to kill one another over it. I am telling you, the reason I work hard at building an interracial, international fellowship as much as I can and preach this message over and over again because I don't think there's any more important message. I think the church, as long as we have predominantly black churches and predominantly white churches in America, the world will say, well, didn't Jesus said by this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another? You don't believe it. Why should we? All right, moving on, uh, I guess not. Uh, we'll pick up. Mm -mm -mm. Um, so tempting. Stephen, Acts 7. How many people love me enough to go a little late? Uh, John's not here to yell at me. <laughs> I only have to face Jason. <laughs> um, hopefully he'll go easy on me. Uh John, Acts 7, 2 through 60. Now, something you need to know is most people wouldn't consider that a gospel presentation, but that's because of mindsets today that's wrong. They would say, well, it's a prophetic message. No, it's, it's a declaration of the kingdom, and that's what we talked about in the, you have to go back to the 930 service. It's a message of judgment to some and a message of mercy to others. It depends on which side of the sword of the spirit you get on when it comes down. So in Acts 7, Stephen, uh, by the way, John did a very good message on Acts 6, and he talked about how God raised up the second tier of leadership, and that, uh, and it was really when the second tier of leadership uh, emerged, that, and that was in his Acts series that he did a couple years back or whatever. But during that second tier of leadership being raised up is when the church began to move out and, and do its mission. No church will ever really do its mission if it's does if all the professional people are what does it. It's when the average person is 
leading people to Christ, making disciples, knows how to make disciples, knows how to cast out demons, heal the sick, and do, can do the stuff, that's when, the, that's when we'll become who God wants us to be. So Stephen is a guy who starts doing the stuff. Wish I could talk more about how respected Stephen was for the first five centuries of church history. Read uh, St. Augustine if you want to on him. But he uh, gives this whole speech to, is to the Sanhedrin, and he covers the entire history of Israel. And he sums it up with this wonderful, gracious, nice, seeker-sensitive message. Get the you know, organist, please start playing some mute music. Please bring the lights down low. And now, everyone close your eyes because I'm going to ask people to raise their hands, and I don't want you you know, to be embarrassed to raise your hand and so forth. And then after he sets this nice winter move, he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Now that should remind you of Jesus's messages in Matthew 6, 22 and 23. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, the righteous one. You have received the law as ordained by angels, yet you did not keep it. Now, he sold so many copies of that message, and it was so popular. Thousands came forward. It, the only problem is they came forward gnashing teeth and rocks and killed him. <laughs> not what I, I think we want to. I'm not going for that. <laughs> but uh, um, I, Stephen quotes, and if you want to study it yourself, maybe I'll pick it up there next week or maybe I'll pick it at Acts 8 because I am going to stop here. But he quotes from Genesis 12, 1 and 15, which are the promises to Abraham. He quotes from Exodus which uh, the story of the Exodus is the, is the story of Christ. He quotes from Deuteronomy 18.15. He quotes from Amos, and he quotes from Isaiah 60, all in a wonderful, seeker-sensitive, nice, lovely gospel presentation that did get him killed. But, uh, oh well. <laughs> so, hopefully we can start seeing this. Uh, and we're going to get into this, and I'm gonna, I'll just give you a teaser as they do. Uh, so hopefully you'll come back next week at 930. And that is simply this. There's reasons for this. There's reasons why you don't have the gospel if you don't have the story of Israel. That is the historical narrative of Israel. Because God was always about saving a people that was going to be the light to the nations, he, um, without restoring the church, I don't care how much you hear people say, we got to restore Jesus as Lord instead of Savior. Restoring a much, there's more, There's that's one of, of what we call the eight missing elements of the Americanized gospel. Without restoring all eight of them to restore a body of Christians that really, really begins to look like the New Testament communities, there will be no message that's able to transform lives as completely as God wants to. Amen.